Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Today, you're going to hear from two people who fundamentally changed my way of thinking about the pandemic. And you can see if that's what they do for you. But right off the bat here, to set the stage for our first conversation, imagine, if you will, a pregnancy test. They're small. They run like 10, 15 bucks. You can get them at your friendly neighborhood pharmacy. Not too different from rapid COVID tests, which are also small. They're cheap, probably cheaper than that pregnancy test. And they're also in your friendly neighborhood pharmacy. Only not in America. Well, I'm holding them in my hand right now. So yes, they absolutely exist. They exist in multiple formats. Many countries across the globe are using them and you can buy them for four euros in a lot of places in Europe. That's Dr. Michael Mina, an epidemiologist and immunologist at Harvard Medical School and Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. They don't yet exist in uh, high numbers here in the United States, primarily because we are slow to get around to doing things that are helpful for us. You know, we, we have a very, very medical-centric approach to a public health catastrophe that's ongoing. And by focusing so heavily on the established medical industrial complex, we have essentially abrogated our ability to respond to a public health threat in a manner that is really commensurate with the fact that this is a public health threat, not a medical threat. Mina has been arguing for months, though sometimes he feels like he's screaming into the void, that rapid testing is crucial. Other countries are using it to beat back the virus, and we aren't. In a few minutes, one of our producers is going to report on her experience giving herself a rapid test, tests which, by the way, are out there in America. But in kind of a forehead-slapping situation, many of them are just sitting on shelves, inaccessible and unused. Mina says testing is one of the big ways out of this mess. It's a way to bring back some semblance of normal life. And it's a mistake to rely on vaccines alone. Many countries around the globe and my colleagues uh, around the globe are truly, you know, not to make light of the situation, but laughing at us and and saying, you know, why, America, can't you get out of your own way and recognize that you have tools sitting right in front of you? You're the most resourced country in the world, but you fail to use them. You fail to recognize just how powerful the tools sitting in front of you are. You know, and so other countries have enjoyed... Uh, the ability to perform extremely rapid, extremely low-cost tests for months now. And we're just still struggling. I'm personally still struggling to try to get the federal government and the state governments to recognize these as, as true public health tools that should be actively acquired and built right here in America, if, if that be the case, and, uh, and distributed sort of with the urgency that this uh, pandemic really demands. So there's a few pieces of that. But one question is, you know, people may have heard, well, rapid tests, they're not as good as PCR tests. You know, so so let's say they were on the shelves at your CVS or your Walgreens. I mean, what good could they really do us? Could they really, in a serious way, change the, you know, turn the tide of coronavirus? Absolutely. This virus transmits invisibly, as we know. And it transmits primarily before people are symptomatic or amongst people who never become symptomatic. 
And so that means we can't use the traditional symptom-based surveillance tools that we might consider as a real powerful way to stop spread. We're not succeeding in stopping spread because we are performing very low frequency testing across the population. Maybe people are getting tested once a month or, or once every six months. You know, many people have never been tested. Right. And so the chances of finding somebody through that type of testing program when they are infectious and at the beginning of their infection before they have had a chance to infect other people is slim to none. Mm-hmm. The real goal is to catch the most number of people who are spreading the virus right now. And these rapid tests can do that because they can be scaled to such high numbers. We could make tens of millions of them every single day. They essentially look like little pieces of paper with, uh, with some molecules printed on them. They, are, they can be printed for very cheap and huge numbers and distributed to people's homes so that they can be frequently testing themselves simply right after you brush your teeth. You use a, a rapid test. Maybe you do that twice every week. The government supplies everyone with these tests. This would be an approach to actually achieve outbreak suppression by giving people knowledge of their transmissibility status in real time, in the time frame that is actually needed to identify yourself as a transmitter, even if you had no idea that you were exposed. So basically, we've said there are these tests that are like kind of perfect or close to very, you know, close to perfect, these PCR tests. Um, and we want to really hold on to these tests. And therefore, we're going to sacrifice really catching the people who um, have coronavirus because there's not very many PCR tests. So a lot of people um, want them and uh, it takes a while to turn them around and you need experts to do it. That's exactly right. I've, I, I like to just point out sort of an extreme, but the best test in the world, never used, has no effectiveness. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we have focused all of our efforts thus far in the United States on PCR. And I'm not against PCR by any stretch. I helped to start what is now the highest throughput PCR laboratory in the country. Uh, I am a medical director at a hospital where I oversee PCR-based testing. There is a role for PCR-based testing, uh, but there is also a role for massively distributed self-screening tests, which these are. And there has been this suggestion that these are much less accurate than PCR. Right, right. Wait, we'll let somebody get into school who really has coronavirus, and then that one person spreads it around to everybody. So this is always the concern that, you, that we worry about that one, that one person getting by. But right now, we have to take a step back and recognize that public health is about mitigating population spread. And if missing one person once is really what we're focusing on, then we're never going to make progress. What we really need to be focusing on is the fact that by getting these tests out to everyone, you're stopping 99% of those cases from getting into the school. We saw a great example of this type of thinking, which is error-prone thinking with the White House. Uh, There was a famous, uh, now a famous, uh, super-spreading event at the White House in the Rose Garden. This was back in October. And after that event occurred, everyone said that the White House is using rapid testing and look at what happened. There was a super-spreading event. These tests are not useful. Uh, But what people failed to recognize, and this is a problem in public health all the time, 
because when public health works, it's not recognized,、mm-hmm. is that the White House, despite a complete neglect for masks and distancing, they managed to go all the way from March through October with no outbreaks,、mm. only using these rapid tests. And so, rapid tests greatly reduce odds. But just like a seatbelt, it's not foolproof. Nothing in this、mm. world is foolproof,、mm. nor is PCR. But by getting these out to many, many more people. We can massively reduce odds and actually sequester whole outbreaks, get whole outbreaks to become suppressed. So then, then you know, and if we can do that, if we can get the R value below one, get the virus to stop transmitting altogether, then we're in a much stronger position to get back to normal life. I have to say too that you know, one of the The things that has come attached to these PCR tests that people wait in line for for four or six or eight hours is that if you get a positive result,、um, you're often told like you have to quarantine for a couple of weeks.、Uh, your kids can't go to school. Your spouse can't go to work. And so, I mean, I you hear it kind of whispered that sometimes people don't want to get a test because then you're in a situation where you might be sick. You you can't get any childcare, so you're you're ill, right? And and you have no help, and nobody will help you or talk to you for weeks.、Um, and I wonder if getting rapid tests and knowing something yourself could help people adjust their behavior, maybe not perfectly, but in a way that would help public health. Absolutely. So one of, it's one of the most important aspects of. This idea of massive rapid testing. This is a way to empower people. We have people who are choosing not to get tested for all sorts of reasons. We have people choosing not to wear masks nor distance for all sorts of reasons, politics and otherwise. But what rapid testing can do is that it can provide a tool that empowers people to know their own status. They get to see. Just like a pregnancy test, these tests show up with a line. If you have one line, it's negative; two lines, it's positive. Okay. And they can see with their own two eyes that there is a line there that they are positive,、mm-hmm. and they can use that test that day, see that they're positive, and make a an, a decision to not go to work that day. Or if they do have to go to work, we have to be realistic because Congress hasn't appropriated the funds to allow people not to go to work. Maybe if they go to work, they sit back. And they don't go into the break room and have lunch with all of their colleagues. Maybe they don't go and have Friday night dinner with their eighty-year-old mother. People can make these behavioral modifications if they are empowered to know that they are positive. Even the most ardent non-mask wearers, you know, still don't want to mistakenly get everyone in their church infected. Don't want to get their family members infected. And so they can make behavioral modifications as much as they can within within their means. And I feel very strongly that these tests meet people where they are at. It meets the public where the public is at today. And further, if they do need to isolate, they will know their status. They'll know when they become negative again.、Um, I, I want to ask you a little bit about the future of these tests. But if somebody is listening to this and they're thinking, "Well, I mean, this sounds interesting," but I mean, vaccines feel like they're a few weeks, maybe a couple months away. Who really cares about rapid testing? Isn't this kind of rearview mirror sort of stuff? Absolutely not. We should never allow one public health strategy to blind us to other as 
useful public health strategies. The vaccine has been one month away since May. Every month, it's been one month away. Now, of course, we are certainly getting closer to the vaccine, but it's still going to be months before the general public gets access to the vaccine. As the vaccine gets rolled out, we are going to learn more and more about just how well it is working to stop transmission or not stop transmission. We will figure out if the durability of the immune response lasts more than two or three months. We don't know that. And there's actually very good biological reason to be very concerned that it may not last more than a few months. Hmm. And so I think of trying to battle this virus in a way that is akin to how we would approach a war. We need a national response, we need to be organized, and we need contingency plans. And in this case, no vaccine is going to replace the need for diagnostics. No vaccine is perfect. And unless we are planning to eradicate this virus, which we are not, then we absolutely need to be able to keep giving people the ability to get tested. And one of the most important points to answering this question is also that the cost of a national rapid testing program is exceedingly cheap compared to vaccines and, mm -hmm. and all the other approaches. It's less than 0.1% of what this virus has costed the U.S. so far could get us a whole year of rapid testing for every American. And so there's very few trade-offs here to make. We may as well just move ahead and start producing these. So you've written that if only 50% of the population tested themselves every four days and the other 50% was like, whatever, I don't care, um, we could essentially almost get to this place of herd immunity where we sent the, the virus kind of back on its heels. And I... I mean, that sounds so good after after all this time. What What's the timeline? What does the timeline look like to you for when I truly will be able to get up, get out of bed and be like, rapid test? Nope, don't have coronavirus. Well, they're being uh, developed now. I mean, in my hand right here, I'm holding three different rapid tests from three different companies. Okay. These tests exist. We just need to scale them up. And frankly, they, there's a scale. They're already being manufactured in such high amounts that we might be able to approach getting half of America to have a test every single week with one of these. But they aren't yet regulated um, because we continue to regulate all of our tests, not as public health tests, but as medical tests. We let little things get in the way, like can this be done at home and still have reporting and things like that. If we want people to be able to do this in their home, these can't be uh, physician-ordered tests that have medical reimbursements. It drives up costs, and it really creates barriers. We need to mm. enable people to collect their own swab from their own nose, very simply with just a very shallow swab that they stick in the front of their nose, and use these tests on their own. The moment we require physician scripts and, and things like that, it makes it all much more complicated, and frankly... Americans are not all patients every day. And if I want to test myself, which I do in my own house because I have these tests, I'm not a patient. I'm just somebody who wants to know if I might be carrying this virus. In the same way that if I check my temperature with my thermometer, I'm, that doesn't make me a patient. I don't need a medical mm -hmm. script to do that. I'm just a person who wants to check my temperature. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm talking with Dr. Michael Mina. He's an epidemiologist and immunologist at Harvard Medical School and Brigham and Women's Hospital. This is a good place to pause. We're going to come back in just a minute to talk more about testing 
and how it could change our lives during the pandemic. From GBH Radio and PureX, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I've been talking with Dr. Michael Mina about rapid testing and how it could be used to turn the tide on the pandemic. He's an epidemiologist at Harvard's Chan School of Public Health, and he's a physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. He says cheap rapid tests are available in lots of countries. You can do them yourself. You can do them at home. And if even just half of Americans tested themselves only about half the time, We would catch so many more cases of COVID than we do now, it would go a long way towards suppressing the epidemic. It would also help people know to isolate, even if they're asymptomatic. And it would allow them to keep testing themselves until they got a negative test, which might only take a few days, far less than the 10 or 14 that's often required by schools and by workplaces. The problem, Mina says, is we've medicalized the tests in the U.S. So you have to go through a doctor or government or some kind of professional to get them. And the way he sees it, that makes no sense. I envision, I really want, I want people to be able to brush their teeth and use a COVID test. The test takes 30 seconds to run. Five minutes later, you have a result, maybe 10 minutes later. Um, It is so simple to use. Everyone can do it. We can have big media campaigns, we can have the news anchors on TV show people do it there on TV just to get people conditioned to understand how to use it. But it is very, very simple to use. Do you think then that at least until the end of January, when we've got a new administration that we're just basically stuck in neutral on this, is there no chance that these tests will be on the shelves. Is that your understanding? Uh, There are, I think that there are ways, I I would be surprised if before then uh, we see a massive influx of new tests. That said, I mean, Access Bio got authorization not too long ago. The Binex nows do exist. These largely aren't being utilized right now, though. There's millions and millions of these tests sitting on shelves right now that the government purchased for $750 million dollars from Abbott. They purchased 150 million of these. But then unfortunately, they uh, distributed them in haphazard ways. And it led to a lot of confusion. They didn't create strategy around how to use these. And they didn't give people a good understanding of exactly where these tests should be used, how they are best utilized. And so people just said, never mind, I don't want to deal with this. I'm busy. And, And went back to PCR testing, which now we have seven-day delays again, that means every PCR test with a seven-day delay is worthless. Right. Um, you know, So unfortunately, we do have them actually floating around our country right now, not accessible to the average person. You know, we talked about this before. We do not know how long this vaccine uh, will be uh, effective for. I mean, it could be that by the time we've basically finished vaccinating people, we have to start again because the first people are now uh, susceptible to the virus again. I just wonder if you ever feel like the real long-term solution isn't actually a vaccine, it's testing. I think the long-term solution uh, is, the vaccine is one long-term solution, but the same as flu, 
and any other infectious disease that circulates endemically, meaning continually, we need to have testing for lots of reasons. And every year we go into flu season, for example, and if somebody wants to know if they have flu, they have to go to their doctor. Mm-hmm. And that creates problems. That leads to transmission in the healthcare setting. It leads to people not getting diagnosed because they can't make it to their doctor. I think what needs to happen is we need to use this as a tipping point, a time when we can start to democratize testing. We can empower people to be allowed to know their status without having to go to a doctor. So whether it's COVID or flu or for little children, uh, this virus called RSV or Lyme disease, I hope that we start giving people the tools to pick up, you know, if it's not provided by the government, maybe you can go and pick it up for five bucks at CVS and, you know, do a test on yourself without having to go through the gatekeeper of a physician who's not going to give you any particularly relevantly good advice anyway, except go home and, you know, if you get sick enough, come back and go to the hospital. Right, right, right. So I, I think that testing is a major part of keeping virus outbreaks like this at bay over the long term, because for a virus like this, it's not going to completely disappear. And so if it starts to build back up in the community, uh, maybe everyone gets a text message that says, hey, coronavirus mm-hmm. is back, use your tests for the next two right. weeks and tamp right, it down right. again. I, I have to ask you, you know, you're, you're a physician. Um, has it been encouraging or dispiriting to, I mean, you've kind of like waded into politics here and said, here's what I think you should do, text your congressman, you know, or congresswoman. Um, I, I don't, what's that been like for you? You know, I think one of the most dispiriting things to me has been that our leaders, I think, have lost track of the fact that they are leaders. I can't tell you how many governors and senators and people in the upper echelons of the White House I have spoken with who say things to me like, well, I don't know if that's possible. I don't know if we can really you know, get authorization to build a lot of tests or to get tests into the home. And I have governors who say, well, you know, how would we realistically do this? I don't think you know, that we can get the FDA to budge. It's a great idea, but you know, the FDA wants, doesn't want these in the home. And then the, the other comments I get very, very frequently as well, you know, why, why hasn't anyone else done this yet? Mm-hmm. And I don't think people are realizing that this is a novel pandemic. Somebody has right, to right, do it right. first. And, right. you know, that's whether, you know, it's a governor in the U.S. or whether it's the White House. And now we are seeing others do it first. Slovakia, Poland, Austria, the U.K., Cameroon, India, So many places are now doing this and the U.S. is just not. And so I think it's been very dispiriting to me to to just see hundreds of thousands of people die, to see millions of people getting sick, to see our economy, the social fabric of our society being pulled. And yet we just are treating things as though it's business as usual when we have tools that can help us. And, And it's been exceedingly difficult and tiring to just try to promote policy while I'm trying to also be a scientist and physician. And, you know, it's, I don't know why more scientists and physicians aren't in an uproar in in a similar way. And, And what's also been dispiriting is that some of the biggest critics against this are physicians who are not necessarily public health officials and have not been able to change their view 
from a medical lens to a public health lens, which makes sense because physicians are kind of taught to do the exact opposite. Right. They're taught to focus on one patient at a time, one sample at a time, and make sure that given that sample or that patient, you're doing the absolute best you could possibly do. That's a different type of thinking than public health. And I've been a little bit frustrated to see many of my own colleagues who advocate against good public health options because they're not perfect. They're not as perfect as they would be in the medical environment. But that is really allowing the perfect to be the enemy of the good, and, and it's slowing everything down, including at the FDA. Dr. Michael Mina is an assistant professor of epidemiology, immunology, and infectious diseases at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Michael, thank you very, very much for talking to me. Well, thank you. So what's it like for an average person to give themselves a test for COVID? Our producer, Sarah Leeson, visited one of the few U.S. companies that actually has rapid tests. How did they get them? Well, since their business is renting out lab space to startups, they just made their own. Here's Sarah. Back in March, I experienced something that might sound familiar to a lot of people. I had a cough, a bit of a fever, symptoms I would have written off as a minor cold if not for what I was seeing on the news. Breaking news tonight, the coronavirus outbreak declared a global pandemic and now the extreme new measures in the U.S. Large events banned in Washington state and San Francisco. As U.S. cases... My doctor sent me to the ER to get tested, but I couldn't. There weren't any tests to be had. Fast forward to September and it was a whole different story, at least for some people. The select few who had access to rapid tests. So she said that the very first impression was harsh because she got immediately scared. That's Elena Martinez speaking through an interpreter. She and her son live alone together and he is disabled. So she got really preoccupied because that son has her as the only provider for his life. In some ways, her story is the polar opposite of mine. She got a test, even though, at the time, it seemed she had no real reason to get one. She came into work at the start of September when testing had just begun as part of a three-month study at a company called Lab Central in Cambridge, Massachusetts. This was before participants were doing tests from home unassisted, so Alex Harmon, a lab technician collecting data, was the lucky worker to catch Elena's positive test. And he said it was hard to believe at first. This person was extremely positive. So it was this massive curve and I was like, oh yeah, that's it. And I was alone in the lab at the time. I was like, who do I, who do I text? What do I do? <laughs> We've come a long way since March and I could certainly get tested if I showed up with symptoms now. But rapid tests that are not widely available like the one Elena got are about filling a gap, testing the asymptomatic to stop an outbreak before it can even start. Elena is doing all right now, although she is still struggling with some long-term symptoms. But because of that rapid test, her entire workplace dodged a bullet. We had one of our colleagues get married recently and they could have like a small number of people only on the beach and distant and it's so sad. So we need to get back to normal life. And these tests will clearly be one of the pieces of the solution. While the world waits for the many, many months that it will take for vaccines to be deployed throughout the population, Johannes Freehoff, president of Lab Central, said that he sees rapid testing as the stopgap that can get us back in schools, 
back on planes, back in the office, and back to living our lives. In the future that Johannes is imagining, you show up somewhere, say a work conference or a wedding, you take a test, you get your result, and you join the crowd without fear. We've all accepted that we will have to wait in line and go through a security screen at the airport so that we are not carrying knives or guns onto the airplane. And we subject to that because we enjoy the sense or the actual safety that this conveys upon every traveler. That's the cassette. Okay. Um, this is your swab. And we do anterior nares. Other COVID tests, like the PCR test, that gold standard that's cited in daily news reports, are powerful, but they're also expensive. And at least up till now, you need lab technicians to analyze the results. This test that they're developing at Lab Central, however, is a little simpler. It's tiny, about three inches long, and it looks an awful lot like, you guessed it, a pregnancy test. Your swab from the candle end. Don't touch the spongy part because that's where your uh, the RNA is. Selena Chang, VP of Science Operations at Lab Central, and Laura Holberger, VP of Strategy at BioLabs, walked me through taking a test myself. You swab inside the nose, place the end of the swab in a vial with some solution, put a few drops from the vial onto the test, and in just three minutes, you get a reading with hopefully, a negative result as clear as my own. So, you look pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) Good news, good news. In an effort to get workers back to the labs, employees at Lab Central have had the opportunity to opt into taking part in this rapid test study. Participants test themselves twice a week, whether at work or at home. I do it in bed on Thursday mornings. (laughs) Right next to my, my bedside table, I wake up and I... Jimmy's always very excited. He's like, so are we negative? (laughs) This test can tell us in real time if you're contagious or not. And it can be done for as little as $5. It's not the gold standard, um, but that's okay. Because what we're looking for is we're looking for people who have a high enough viral load that they're actually shedding and infecting other people. And this can definitely detect that. Dr. Joshua Schiffer, an infectious disease specialist from the University of Washington, who we spoke with in October, is, like Michael Mina from Harvard, a champion of rapid testing, even if these tests aren't perfect. There's a number of different ways to attack this and to achieve success, and very few of them are going to involve just a perfect solution that is foolproof. Each of these strategies has holes But if you apply all of them, fewer infections break through. While frontline workers in the U.S. may start getting vaccinated soon, the rollout of a vaccine that's dependent on cold storage, desired by billions of people, and has only existed for a few months, looks to be complex. For now, rapid testing is what we've got. When I asked if we would see the Lab Central rapid test in stores like CVS and Walgreens, Johannes was optimistic. He said the question is actually when, not if. Will we get it for Christmas or will we get it for Easter? We will have them next year, for sure. We will have them early next year. We may have some of them late this year. If a self-administered test, like the one from Lab Central, can become widespread, it could change our lives dramatically. And it would have to be parceled out carefully, because the demand would be massive. For now, though, at least in the U.S., it's still a waiting game. For Innovation Hub, I'm Sarah Leeson.
We've got more about the tests that Sarah took on our website, along with recent work from Dr. Michael Mina on how rapid testing could turn the tide of the pandemic. Plus, what has the incoming Biden administration said about rapid testing? They're for it, but the language so far is vague. More on all of that at innovationhub.org. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.